This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Will we one day be able to control robots with just our thoughts? Why do our brains dream at night? Could it have anything to do with the rotation of the planet? These are all questions which are answered by David Eagleman, leading neuroscientist who joins us this week in conversation with musician and producer Brian Eno for a conversation about neuroplasticity and how our brains continue to evolve. It's a really fascinating conversation which touches on a lot of cutting-edge research, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for David's book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello, David. (laughs) Hello. Good to see you, Brian. Yes, nice to see you as well. So David and I have known each other actually for quite a long time. And we first made contact because I came across his book of short stories called Some, which is a book that I would very much recommend anyone to read. It's some, the subtitle is 40 Tales from the Afterlife. And it's a speculation on what the various afterlives available to us might be like. Um, they're very short stories, but they're very provocative and they're very witty and um, intelligent in, a, in an interesting way. And as indeed is David, I think. And it's interesting to me that I knew him first as a writer and only then discovered that he's actually a neuroscientist. And I think the interesting thing about his writing is that his science writing is as sort of witty and lateral as a lot of his, his fiction writing. There's something very approachable and undogmatic about it. And I think, don't you call yourself a possibilitarian or something like that? Possibilian. A possibility. yes. So, so I think that's a word for somebody who admits to uncertainty about their beliefs and says that there are lots and lots of different possibilities and I'm not going to endorse any particular one. And I think that as a sort of thinking style makes for a very interesting kind of writing. So a lot of David's books, of course, are based on evidence and experiment and so on. But they're very interesting because there's a lot of speculation in them as well. Some is a book of pure speculation, but the ability to speculate actually goes through a lot of David's work. And um, this latest book, which is a really great read called Live Wired, is about thinking about plasticity, brain plasticity, at a much deeper level than I've ever thought about it before. And I think at some new levels that haven't been discussed before, really. So let's start with the title. Instead of calling the book Brain Plasticity, David has chosen to call it Live Wired. And 
perhaps we should just try to see what he means by that term that is that means more than brain plasticity. What's the difference between brain plasticity and live wired? Yeah, great. Thanks for that question. The term plasticity, which is the term we use in the field to, to, to represent the fact that you've got these 86 billion neurons and they're constantly reconfiguring and plugging and unplugging and re-finding new places to plug and so on. We use the term plasticity for that, but that was coined a hundred years ago by William James, because he was impressed with, with plastic manufacturing. And the idea was, you know, you mold something into shape and it holds that shape. And that's what makes plastic really useful for us. And so he thought, you know, it's like the brain learns something and changes its configuration. And then it holds on to that. That's why you can remember something years later. So he used the term plasticity, but I think given the size of what we now understand, the days of being impressed by plastic manufacturing are over because what's happening in this giant forest is an, inc- you know, every moment of your life, this is, you know, reconfiguring. Yeah. And so I, I wanted a better term than plasticity. So, so the idea is I, I also wanted to distinguish the, the way we think about everything in Silicon Valley is hardware and software. Mm-hmm. And what we're all carrying around is three pounds of liveware. It's a completely different kind of material than anything we know how to build but it's a, a material that reconfigures itself uh, all the time. Yes. So actually, I, the next question I was going to ask was about that word liveware. Is that a new word for you? From you? That's a new word. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a very useful word because the, as you said, the idea of plasticity is that the brain remolds itself and then stays fixed, which is actually not what happens. The brain is always remolding itself. So you have, you have this notion of us as sort of permanently unfinished beings where we never reach a terminal state actually. Well, except when we die, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I started the book with a Heidegger quotation, which I love, which is that, you know, each man is born as many men and dies as one. Mm. And the reason it's such a lovely quotation is because we we have so much, um, Potential. It's sort of like a, one of these space-time diagrams where you might go off on any trajectory depending on your experiences in the world. And of course, this is what is special about human brains is that we absorb what is around us. And mm-hmm. I'll just mention, just by way of just introducing part of this conversation is when we look around the animal kingdom, there's something so special about us as humans. Animals are born into the world and they generally are pre-programmed in a sense. So if you're an alligator or a horse or whatever, you're, you know, you just do your thing. The same thing that you did a hundred thousand years ago, but humans dropped in the world. We have these incredibly long infancies. And what we're doing is absorbing everything that humans have learned before us so that we springboard off the top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, we're the super live wired species. We're just very flexible in our, and that's why we've taken over every corner of the planet and gotten off the planet. So, so what's interesting though is is um, which parts of the brain are plastic, and which parts shouldn't be plastic. Obviously, not all of our brain is permanently in a state of flux because that would be very difficult for us to negotiate anything as simple as picking up a can of drink, for example. So, so what's how does that work? What are the sort of what are the rules that determine which parts are plastic and which parts? Are not which parts are liveware and which parts are a little bit more stable. Yeah, so essentially it all starts as liveware, but what happens? I propose a hypothesis in the book, which is that the the incoming data, the more stable it is, the more the system kind of 
crunches into place and becomes less flexible around it. So as an example, your visual system, you know, there's just a certain number of colors and angles and orientations in the world. And you, you learn that up pretty quickly. So your visual system kind of crunches down into place more rapidly than some other areas like your, your motor system that drives your body. Why? Because as you go through life, you get fatter, thinner, you get, you know, tall went from the time you're a baby and, you know, you climb on scooters and pogo sticks and trampolines and so on. So your, your motor system is always having to figure out new body plans, whereas your visual system is sort of fixed into place. And so what you find is plasticity is not something you have as a child and it stops. Instead, you've got all these closing doors is the right way to think about it that close at different rates. So just as an example, you know, something like accent, if you move to a new country when you're a child, before, let's say, the age of 13, you can develop accentless speech in the new country. But after about 13, you're always going to retain a bit of the accent because that's sort of a closing door there. And also, you know, there are these very tragic natural experiments with feral children. Sometimes you find a child, these are really heartbreaking, but you find a child who's been so abused and neglected by their parents that they haven't had the normal interaction with, you know, language and love and touch and so on. And they end up very cognitively damaged as a result. Yeah. Um, for example, you find this with the Romanian orphanages after the fall of Ceausescu. You, there were tens of thousands of children in these orphanages and the staff simply didn't feel that they had the the ability to deal with this many children. So they said, look, don't talk to them. Don't touch them. That way the kids won't become clingy. And, uh, and all these children ended up with real cognitive damage because brains show up in the world with the expectation of, of yes. interaction. So obviously we can, we can damage our brains by abusing them that way. But is there any way that we can positively modify our plasticity? Is, is there any way we can exercise it? make it better, more effective. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is seeking novelty because what the brain is constantly trying to do is build an internal model of the world. And part of the reason that plasticity diminishes with age is because we develop a pretty good model of how to operate in the world. And this is why as an adult, you can be successful. It's why an eight-year-old can't be CEO of a company, but an adult sort of gets the rules of the operation. And so that's the good news about learning the world. But the bad news, of course, is your brain is less, less flexible. Mm -hmm. And so the key is seeking novelty, always putting your brain in situations where it's between frustrating and achievable, whatever <laughs> you're trying to do. And, um, you know, finding finding new challenges. And by the way, I'll just mention, you know, the pandemic this past 15 months has been so terrible for so many people. The very tiny silver lining to it is that it knocked us all off of our hamster wheels. I mean, back in 2019, we all sort of felt like, OK, I've got this. I know how the world works. And we all had to rethink so many things, including you know, at the beginning. Where do I get toilet paper? Where do I get food? And so on. But just. I've seen a more general thing where people are thinking about, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And do I want to go back to the work that I was doing before and so on? It's really good for the brain to take your internal model and shake it up and try mm -hmm. new things out. Yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, I had the depressing experience recently of talking to a CEO of a clothes retailing company who said with great excitement, it's wonderful. Everybody's spending as much money as they can again. And I thought... <laughs> I thought, oh dear, that's that's rather depressing. <laughs> I I had hoped that, that it might be the end of the consumer society, but I don't think it's going to be. There's too much 
Yeah. yeah, we're bouncing back into the roaring 20s. I mean, it's just obvious when you go to airports or any kind of thing. Now, everybody has really missed being a part of the world. And so they're going to do more of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps perhaps they'll find it's a little bit disappointing after all, and they won't do so much of it. I don't know. But uh, there's something in the book that really interested me, which was to do with the speed of these changes within the mind. I, I had all, I'd known about plasticity before, but I thought it was a kind of slow process, something that would happen over weeks, months, or even years. But that isn't the case at all, is it? Things happen very, very, very quickly. That's right. And this is a very new discovery in neuroscience. So um, it turns out that plasticity happens at all kinds of timescales. But one of the things that comes as a surprise is that the brain is extremely cross-wired. So you have neurons, brain cells from your auditory system that are reaching over all the way into visual system and touch and so on, and, and vice versa. And every, everybody has sort of silent sentinels into other areas just in case something changes. So it turns out that if you take a, it, it, okay, so if you take someone who's blind and you look at them in the scanner, you find that they're, what we would have thought of as their visual cortex is being activated by sound, by touch, things like that. Mm-hmm. because all that stuff gets taken over. But the surprise is that if you take somebody who's sighted and you blindfold them tightly and you stick them in the scanner, within an hour, you're starting to see changes where there's some activity in response to sound and touch in the visual cortex within an hour. And this came as a big surprise because you know, exactly as you said, nobody thought it changes that fast, but these silent sentinels from hearing from touch are, are reaching over and saying, Oh wait, there's no more visual data coming in. So let's start moving. So here's the thing. We, when you look at a neuroscience textbook, you, you say, Oh, here's the visual system. Here's audition. Here's touch from the body and so on. And it seems like everything is happily fixed into place. But in fact, yeah. the whole system is so fluid. It doesn't want any land to lie fallow. And as soon as activity stops coming in, things start shifting and moving. The, the springs are wound tight on this. And, and so this led me to a completely new hypothesis about, about why we dream at night. And so yeah. um, uh, my student and I just published this this past year. It has to do with the following. What I realized is given the speed of takeover that can happen, the visual system in particular is at a big disadvantage because the planet rotates into darkness for half the time. And in the dark, you can still, you know, hear and touch and smell and so on, but you can't see anymore. And of course I'm talking about evolutionary time, not electricity blessed times. So, what I realized is the visual system needs some way to defend itself against takeover in the dark when the planet rotates. And that is what dreaming is about. So every 90 minutes, you've got this very specialized circuitry that just blasts activity into the visual cortex. That's all it does. That's all dreaming's about. You're just blasting activity in there to keep it defended against takeover from its neighbors. And of course, because it's your visual cortex, you experience it visually. And then because the brain, you know, is a great storyteller, we impose narrative upon it. And, um, you know, because some synapses are hot from whatever you've been experiencing during the day, it's usually connected with the content is connected with what you've experienced. But anyway, dreaming is a defensive activation just to keep the visual cortex defended. 
Yeah, that's such a beautiful theory. <laughs> that's so. I think it's so elegant that. By the way, actually, let me let me just mention we just published a paper where we looked at twenty five species of primates in great detail and looked at how plastic their brains are because some species like humans are super flexible and others like gray lemur, uh, gray mouse lemur is you know much less flexible and we correlated that with how much. REM sleep they get in an evening. And it turns out that they correlate perfectly. The more flexible you are as a species, the more dream sleep you have. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Are, are, we, are we at the top? Are we at the top of that league? We are the, the dreamers of the universe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yes, I, I used to have a theory about dreaming based on 24 um, track technology, because I was once I was falling asleep one night and I noticed I was thinking about a girl with a, no, a shoe for a nose. And I realized I'd been thinking about some new shoes I was planning to get and this woman. And my my dream state had superimposed the two. And I thought, oh, I see what's happening here. It's just that we've got all these separate tracks of thought in our mind, you know, like I'm sitting on this chair and feeling how hard it is. And it's quite warm here. I'm feeling that as well. I'm worrying about a film I've got to make some music for tomorrow, all these different things. Normally in in daytime, we manage to keep the narrator straight. He knows that this is the important bit and these other bits are superficial right now. But at night, the that part of the brain seems to switch off. And my theory of dreams was that we just want, wander randomly through all of these different channels of thinking that we have. And the narrator tries to create a story that holds them all together. But it's not inconsistent with what you're saying, actually. Uh, what you're talking about is the machinery of dreaming. I'm talking about how the content works. So I think we could have a joint theory here. That, okay, that's great. But by the way, I want to mention, you know, my last book called The Runaway Species was about what's going on with creativity, why humans and all animals, but especially humans are so creative. And mm-hmm. it actually has to do with the fact that everything we absorb, unlike a computer, we're bending and breaking and blending ideas all the time. So the shoe on the nose is a perfect example of that. So yes, that came out during a dream, but in some parts of your brain that you have no access to, that's happening during the day as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you come up with new ideas. You think, oh, what if I blended this and this? And and what happens is your brain is always trying to solve little problems of things. So if it said that the shoe on the nose was the solution to something, then that would have bubbled up to your consciousness during the day. Mm-hmm. But you're trying a billion things that don't really lead to anything. And so your brain says, all right, that, you know, crossing those tracks, nah, nothing really out of that. Doesn't so work. Yeah. yeah. Going back to um, the visual cortex again, we now live in a time when we are primarily visual creatures, I would say. You know, we're all sitting in front of screens like we're doing now. And most of our work is done in front of screens, more and more of it. So what what's the effect on the human brain when one sense becomes so dominant as that? Is there any um, feeling about that? Yeah, I mean, the general story is that we have always been very visual creatures. We rely on that. And, you know, there's a sense, I mean, that, look, audible books have gained in popularity. There's a lot that we're doing listening-wise as well. We don't do a lot of stuff with our skin. The joke in my lab is that, you know, we don't call this the waste for nothing. You know, you're not, you're not really doing much with your skin. You just cover it up. But yes, uh, it's exactly right. What you are exposed to sculpts your brain. So just as an example, we have many more visual neurons in our cortex that respond to vertical and horizontal 
Why? Because we live in a carpentered world. This is what we expose the brain to. So we have cells that are really responsive to this. Do we have more of those kinds of cells than, for instance, Bushmen or Eskimos? Or, or do they also get them? In theory, yes. In theory, yes, we have more of that. You know, even somebody, a Bushman or Eskimo, sees trees and sees the horizon, so they will still have plenty of that. But in theory, because our whole world is this, we have more of it. It has not been tested in terms mm -hmm. of bringing in Bushmen and Eskimos into the scanner mm -hmm. at some point. <laughs> Your company, which is called Neosensory, is doing some very, very interesting work with using that great wasted sense organ, the skin, the human body. Perhaps you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Some years ago, I got really interested in my laboratory in this idea of sensory substitution, which is, you know, essentially your brain is locked in silence and darkness and all it ever gets are spikes coming in through different data cables. So, you know, your eyes aren't passing light into your brain. What, what your eye does is translate photons into spikes, electrochemical spikes that are going back in the brain and your ears compressing, uh, translating air compression waves into spikes and your skin is translating pain and itch and temperature and so on into spikes. Anyway, all the brain ever sees are these spikes and it just figures out what to do with them. And so there's this idea that came up actually in the late 1800s, which is, gosh, could you actually feed information to the brain via an unusual channel? For example, could you feed in hearing, not through the ears, but through some other way? So in my lab, we built a vest with vibratory motors on it, and it captures sound and turns it into patterns of vibration on the skin. And deaf people can come to hear the world this way. They actually come to hear the world. And, and when I interview people about this and I ask them, okay, what is it like? You know, when, when you hear the dog barking, do you think, oh, I'm feeling vibration, so there must be a dog bark, and you translate? Or, and they say, no, it's just the, I hear the dog barking. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds weird, it's, you know, remember that our own ears are just, you know, capturing what's happening at the eardrum, breaking it up into frequencies from low to high in the cochlea, shipping it off to the brain. All we're doing is we're translating the, we're transferring the cochlea to the skin. Yeah. So what we've done in the last several years is we translated this to a, uh, uh, the vest into a wristband. So it's about the size of a Fitbit and it's got these um, vibratory motors so I spun, this, I spun this off as a company out of my laboratory, and it's got, you know, these vibratory motors that translate the sound into patterns on the skin. And we're on wrists all over the world. So people who are deaf can come to hear the world around them through their skin. So with that little device you just showed us there, how many separate sort of triggers are there on that? So there... The way we've built this is with four motors, but we actually take advantage of a haptic illusion, which is if I stimulate two of those motors, you will feel a single point in between. And as I change the amplitude of those motors, we can move that virtual point in between. So we're actually, we've got 128 points that we're stimulating on the skin virtually that way. And, and humans are sensitive enough to distinguish between those 128 points of it. Yes, but not at first. So at first, they yeah. just sort of have a general sense. But everything about live wiring in the brain has to do with relevance. So when your brain realizes, oh, wait, I'm getting information from there that actually is meaningful to my world, then it starts devoting more real estate to the wrist, which it never really cared that much about before. Mm -hmm. And so now it gets more and more sensitive to differences. Yeah. So uh, in the um, film I've seen of you using the vest, the, the very interesting thing is that there's a lot of activity going on. It's very high-density information, 
which of course it would have to be to deal with language and so on. So how long does it take people to be able to make use of that? So what's what's fascinating is it's a linear increase through time. So on day one, after they wear it, you know, for 30 minutes, they're actually better than chance on day one. And then on day two, they're a little better than that day three. And so the reason I mentioned it's a linear increase is because sometimes when you see performance increases that have a big jump, what that Mm -hmm. represents is something conscious where someone says, Oh, I get it. But that's not what happens here. Instead, the brain is just slowly unlocking the pattern and just gets better and better at it through time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, by, you know, by day five, people can, you know, recognize particular sounds pretty easily. And by day 35 and by day 90, they're, you know, they're having a conscious experience. Yes. The, and the most interesting thing about this to me is, well, the, or the most unfamiliar part of it to me is the idea of using it to actually create new senses so that, that what we've been talking about so far is using it to replace senses that are missing for example, so for a deaf person to make them able to hear, or a blind person to be able to see. But this possibility of actually creating new ways of sensing the world that aren't sight and aren't sound is incredibly interesting, I think. And you talk you talk in the in the book, I think, about being able to sense a whole building. So so you're you're wearing a vest that tells you about the condition of the building that you're in. Very handy if you're a janitor, but also quite nice if you're an architect, I should imagine. <laughs> That's right. So so we actually have 70, 70 different projects going on now with feeding different kinds of information into the wristband to expand our senses in something totally new. So things like, you know, we started with stock market or drones or, you know, just as an example, just so to make it clear, like, you know, so as a pilot is flying a drone around, he's feeling the pitch, yaw, roll and orientation on his skin. And it's like stretching his skin up there. You know, he's one with the drone as a result of this. And that allows you to fly much better and fly in the dark and in the fog and things like that. But we're, we've done this with electrical fields, with infrared vision, you know, with uh, we, we've done this with so many different things. If anybody's interested, I'll just mention that on, on neosensory.com, we have a blog where we talk about all these different projects that we're doing. But yeah, these are all examples of sensory addition or expansion where we're taking uh, new data streams and pushing them in. And the thing to the thing that's so remarkable about it is, you know, we're used to our eyes and nose and mouth and ears and stuff. But these are just our, these are just the things that we have inherited from a long road of evolution. And these capture photons in a particular frequency range, and these capture a particular mix of molecules and so on. But you can push any kind of information in there. And this is in the book, I you know, expound my potato head theory, which is that it's just like when you're a kid and you've got this potato head and you plug in whatever you want, you know, eyes and nose and ears and whatever you want. That's what the brain is like. You can plug in whatever sensors you want. And one of the really important things I would say for my own thinking about this is, you know, I spent a lot of time looking across the animal kingdom and understanding, wow, you have very different weird sensors on animals. You know, they can detect electrical fields or they can detect infrared or ultraviolet or, um, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of things animals detect. And when I studied this carefully and looked at it, it's not that there's anything different about their brains. Their brains are working on exactly the same principles, the same stuff, same neurons. And what that told me is you can just plug anything in. And if it's relevant to the goals of the organism, it'll just figure out how to use that data. Yeah. So uh, actually, there's something in your book I'd like to read because I, I think this is a very exciting view of the future. You, you're talking about 
having this way of thinking, this live wiring way of thinking, extending it into architecture and so on. So you say, this is this is very much like David's book, Sum, actually. <laughs> this is very speculative and interesting thinking. Imagine a house that knows its own architecture and can readjust its nervous system to match changes. When a new room is added, air ducts and electrical wiring grow into it naturally. The brain of the house readjusts, developing a new sense of what the house looks like. What if we engineered bricks that took cues from each other to self-organize into a structure, the way that the individual neurons assemble into larger nuclei? What if buildings could shift around, dynamically optimizing their sun exposure, their shade, their water access, and the amount of wind that they were exposed to? What if they were mobile, able to stand up and move to a better spot when a fire looms or coastlines change shape over long timescales? There's no end to the, to the way that engineering will flourish as we come to understand live wiring. So apart from the fascination of what we now understand about the brain as a result of your work or the new things that we understand, there's this possibility of a future of intelligent, mobile matter, actually. And I think this is very, very promising indeed. Thank you. I'll tell you the truth. This is going to be my next company that I spin off is trying to mobile homes, understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Trying to build and understand liveware because, you know, I I wrote the, the whole book about it and that's very exciting, but it's, we're not, we're not building things thinking that way. Again, everything is about how do you make the most trim and efficient hardware and then run a software layer on top of that. And that's super useful for things. But in fact, you know, we throw out all our technology when it becomes obsolete. But, uh, you know, I give this example at the end of the book, thinking about the, the Mars rover spirit, um, which was this terrific Mars rover that NASA built. We sent it up to the planet, cost lots of money. It did a great job, but then it got its right front wheel stuck in the Martian soil and it died. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a, a wolf, it gets its leg caught in a trap. What, what does it do? It chews its leg off and then it figures out how to walk on three legs. Is that because wolves are pre-programmed to know how to walk on three legs? No, but they figure it out. They just figure out, okay, how do I operate this body and do that? And then they get back to their food and so on. This is because wolves have the sense of relevancy and urgency and they got, you know, they've got their stomach they have to worry about and so on. And so wouldn't it be terrific if we could build liveware robots that say, oh, I've got my right front wheel stuck. I'm just going to chew my wheel off and then figure out how to move around instead of becoming a billion dollar piece of space junk. Yes. So of course, what we'll, we'll go to questions soon, but what is immediately interesting to me is are there possibilities for us thinking of new ways of monitoring what is happening to the planet and and actually feeling them urgently? Everyone knows what's happening to the planet, actually, but we don't feel it yet. We, we need to feel it in a personal way. We need to actually be there somehow in, in an embodied sense. And I, I, was, I was wondering whether you had thought about that or worked on that at all. You know, I have thought about it. One of the issues, I think, is that the only people who would wear it are the people who already care about the planet. And so it's, you know, it's not clear it would lead to more people having an understanding of something. The other thing is, as, as you will, so Brian and I both serve on the board of the Long Now Foundation. On long timescales, it's difficult to get the brain to care about things because you're talking changes that are stretched over years and years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a this is a long term problem, but but I think um, if we just insisted that it was obligatory that all politicians wore a vest 
<laughs> and whenever a, a large stretch of rainforest got burnt, they felt they felt it on their the small of their back. You know, it got very hot yeah. there suddenly. Something like that. Any, anyway, I'll, I'll look at some of the questions here. So, from Mark Williams, from a neuroscientist perspective, is there really a self inside the brain, or is this an illusion? That's a big question. Yeah. So in LiveWired, I propose a new hypothesis about the self. And I think what it is, is what the brain figures out it can control. So, you know, I mean, there's nothing special about, you know, these weird limbs that we have, but you really, your brain, your three pound mission control center realizes, oh, I, I can move this thing around and I can think about it and get it to go where I want. It takes years to learn this as an infant, but you get pretty good at it. So that becomes part of your notion of a self. And in fact, even your mirror image, you can, you know, across the room, you can move things around and it responds as the brain wants. And so you say, oh, that must be myself also. But when somebody gets damage to part of their body, let's say they get damaged, this can happen in the brain. It can also happen from a nerve getting severed, let's say in the leg. Then they deny that the leg is theirs. They look at it and they say, that's not me. It's just this weird chalky, hairy cylinder that's sitting there. It's not me. And people cook up all kinds of weird explanations. You know, their, their brains cook up these narratives of must be someone else's leg or someone just sewed a leg onto me, or maybe it's the doctor's leg or something. But, but um, this falls under the category of what's called anosognosia, which is, you know, not knowing your own body. But the point is, you can't control it anymore. It no longer responds to your commands. And so then it falls from the brotherhood of the self. Yes. Now it's not part of you. Yes. And so, and, and you know, you notice this when you're driving a car too. I mean, the car in a sense becomes part of you. And if you, you know, run into something or scratch something, you kind of feel like it's your own body. So I think this is going to be really interesting as we come to, I mean, and this is really near future stuff, you know, as we come to control robots, for example, with our thoughts and you've got a robot on the other side of the room doing something. If something falls on the robot and hits it, you're going to really flinch. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's, that's my hypothesis, that the self is what you can control. Okay, so here's another one from anonymous attendee. <laughs> I've heard that the octopus has a brain as sophisticated as the human brain, but their bodies aren't evolved to allow them to do anything very intelligent. How well adapted are our bodies to our brains? Could they be better than they are? You know, octopuses is a fascinating example. It's an example of convergent evolution where you find intelligence developing in a mollusk brain. And we're intelligence over in here in this mammalian brain. So what that demonstrates to us is it's not it's not impossible or that hard maybe to, to develop intelligence. But octopi have a very different world. You know, they only live typically a year. And so because of all these strange constraints that they have, like predation, because they lost like, you know, all cephalopods. Not, there's a whole class of cephalopods that lost their shells a long time ago. They're vulnerable animals. They have to watch out for predation. So anyway, there are a lot of other differences uh, that count for why octopuses maybe don't get as intelligent as, as we are. It's not, I'm not sure I agreed with the first part of the statement that their brains are as good or better than human brains, but it is convergent evolution of intelligence for sure. It's very interesting that they live for such a short time, isn't it? I just discovered I, I have a lot of pheasants in my garden. Pheasants have a lifespan of only about a year as well, which could explain why they are so stupid. They and, and habitually fling themselves in front of passing cars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but, the, but the short lifespans of octopuses tell us that short lifespan doesn't have to map on to stupid. 
Yeah, that's true. It can be really intelligent, yeah. Oh, so this is an interesting question. If dreaming protects the visual function of the brain, how are the other functions, such as sound and touch, protected when we sleep? Well, maybe we don't need to protect those. So you don't need to protect those because because generally they're still getting stimulated. So you hear sounds when you sleep, you know, whether it's the campfire animals or wind or rustling around or whatever, you're still feeling those. And of course, your whole body, you know, as you're rolling over and stuff, you're feeling stuff all over your skin all the time. And presumably, you know, if there's smells around and so on, it, they're getting a lot less activity than normal. But nonetheless, they're getting a lot more than the visual system, which is completely shut off. Yes. At that point. Yeah. Yes. And by the way, I'll just mention a side note, because because people ask this all the time. They say, wait a minute, there's a hole in your theory. What about blind people? But but what happens with blind people, you know, this this dreaming circuitry is ancient. All animals sleep uh, uh, dream. Sorry, all animals dream. So it's a very ancient circuitry. But what happens if you go blind? You're still having dreams. You're still pumping activity into the visual system. Why? Because it's, you know, very deeply inbuilt circuitry that does that. But what's interesting is for a blind person, this whole area is taken over by hearing and touch. And so their dreams are that. They say, oh, yeah, I was walking around the room and feeling the furniture, and but everything was rearranged and bizarre. And then I felt and, and there was a bear in the corner and I felt him and I ran away. And but, but that's what their dreams are. It's the same exact activity getting pumped in. It's just that it's no longer visual cortex. It's now yeah. other stuff. Yeah. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are the implications of the ever-changing brain for machine learning? Will it help improve driverless cars and other smart technology? 
Yeah, great question. And this is a big part of why my next company is going to be about really building this stuff. Machine learning is so impressive and so much of what's happening in, in Silicon Valley is all about machine learning, but there are various parts of it that are just, you know, missing. For example, there's no sense of relevance in machine learning. It doesn't care about survival or anything like that. It's just, you know, if you feed it millions of pictures, dogs and cats and whatever, it'll do that. But machine learning, even though it's so impressive, it's not widely understood about the massive limitations of it. It's only really good at very well-defined problems where you can define very clear rules on it, like, like games, you know, chess or go, these seem like complicated games, but they have very simple rule sets. Machine learning is great at that stuff, but it's not good at anything a three-year-old human can do. You know, a three-year-old human can walk into a room and look around and navigate it and, uh, and manipulate adults and, you know, feed herself and do, you know, do a hundred things that, that machine learning just can't do. And it's not that we won't get there, but I think we're going to have to rethink many fundamental assumptions about, how we how we plug in my slogan lately is you know if you want to build a robot start with the stomach by which i simply mean it needs to have motivation it needs to have a reason to do what it's doing you know if you had a robot roll into the room just now it actually wouldn't be able to do anything because it has no yeah. sense of stacking priorities and knowing what is the next thing that it wants to do yeah yeah so somebody else i think we may have answered this question but it might have some other things to say to it. Uh, we frequently hear that our brains become less elastic as we get older. Is this true? And if so, is there anything we can do about it? You know, the only thing I'll say to add on to what we already talked about is just a lot of times we feel this fantasy that we'd like to have more plastic brains. We, we, you know, as, as we're getting older, we'd love to. So, for example, I'm, I've been trying to teach myself Chinese and, and it's much harder now than it would have been when I was five years old. Um, but the fact is, Let's say neuroscientists came up with some magical potion and said, here, take this potion and this will reinstate plasticity all over your brain and you can become like a child again. If you took it, you would lose you. You would lose everything that makes up who you are because who you are is the sum total of all the memories and experiences that you've gathered during a lifetime. You're essentially the way I describe it in the book is you're essentially a vessel of space and time. And you've gone through the world and vacuumed up a particular trajectory of experiences. You were born in a particular town yeah. in a particular year. And, and that's who you are. So if you were offered this pill where you could learn Chinese in a week, it wouldn't be worth it. I think you'd, you'd lose you and you'd become uh, an infant again. Speaking of memory, this morning, I was sitting at breakfast and reading something, and the phrase Two Faces came up, and I suddenly remembered a song called Two Faces Have I, and I thought, that was by Lou Christie, wasn't it? Now, I haven't thought of that song or of Lou Christie for at least 55 years. Can you give me any idea of what was happening to that memory in that intervening 55 years? Where is it? What is it? <laughs> Great question. Okay, so right, you've got this 86 billion neurons and half a trillion connections, synapses between them. And what happens is, this is the remarkable thing about being able to store memory, which we're a particularly good species at. So this thing came in, it was somehow relevant to you as a child, and it got stored. Uh, one of the hypotheses that I explore in the book is that is that there's actually things get more cemented in with time. By the way, this is this is the oldest rule in neurology is that 
older memories are more stable than newer memories. Just as a quick side note, you know, if any of you have seen somebody get dementia, for example, in their older age, they can't remember what they did last week or last month or last year, but they remember their childhood just fine. Mm-hmm. And that's because the older memories are cemented in at a deeper level. But anyway, this is the remarkable thing is that we go through life and things that are relevant to us get, get stuck in there. Um, and that's what makes us who we are. By the way, there was just a recent study where people did brain scanning on adults who use Pokemon toys as kids. And, and they still have lots of brain activation because <laughs> they remember the stuff that they did 20 years ago. There's a very interesting piece in, in the book about synesthesia where it turns out that a lot of synesthetes who identify numbers as the same colors, and they happen to be the colors of the Fisher-Price alphabet from the 1980s, is it, I believe. So, so that's sort of imprinted on a lot of people. Exactly. Just as a quick side note, so, you know, I, I built this, this online synesthesia battery to test people. And what we found is that, you know, all synesthetes who, who experience color when they see letters of the alphabet, they all have random different things. And it's presumably because, you know, you can think about it as random wiring between these areas that code for letters and these colors. You can think about it that way. But I also started wondering if maybe this had to do with what you happen to be exposed to as a kid. You know, you, your, your kindergarten teacher had a quilt with different color A and B and C, or you picked up crayons of different colors, whatever. But yes, what we found, what my colleagues at Stanford and I discovered is that when we looked at the battery, there were, in some years, up to 15% of people had the same pattern. A is red and B is blue and C is yellow and so on. Yeah, and it was the Fisher-Price alphabet set that they were imprinting on as children. Yeah, that's very interesting. This is a question that says, this is one for David and Brian. Machine learning is already composing music. Some of it sounds okay. Could the machines put Brian out of work? Well, I can tell you no, because I'm designing the machines. So I'm still going to have a job. <laughs> but um, it's, it's actually, these are very interesting questions about whether, whether machines can be creative. And of course, the machines aren't being creative. What's, what's being creative is us who are designing them and making choices about them and defining the parameters of the kinds of choices they will make. So at the, at the moment, there aren't any, you might be reassured or disappointed to know, there aren't any actually um, creative machines. There are machines that can do lots and lots of interesting things with inputs that we give them, things that we wouldn't do ourselves, and, and then we can make judgments about them. But it's still, it's still us making the judgments. So, so I'll, I'll just alley-oop off that because I – I think you, you hit it there at the end, which is that, so all brains are doing, I mentioned earlier, this is my last book, Runaway Species, brains are taking in data and crunching it and mixing it and doing new things and saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And most of it is garbage. But every once in a while you think, ooh, that would make a good riff. That, that makes sense. So what machines are really good at doing, machine learning, is that bending, breaking, blending, and putting things together in amazing ways. And I think that is creativity. That's the same as what human brains are doing. But there's this second part to creativity that brains do, which is the filtering. So it's smashing new things together and then filtering almost all of them out. And that second part is the part that machines can't do. 
Yeah. Currently. Yes. Because they don't know what it is to be a human and what would appeal to us. So just as an example, you know, Google Deep Dream, for example, makes these incredible combinations of different styles and items. And you get these paintings out of it that are remarkable. But the ones you see online that are remarkable are the ones that were hand selected by humans who thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Most of them are garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Okay. So James Cole asks, do we have free will? This is a subject that I know you've dealt with in one of at least one of your other books. At, yes, quite, at quite length. It's a very, very interesting question. This. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I'm a scientific advisor on the show Westworld, and you know, this is essentially what we spent eight hours in a in the writers' room talking about is this question, and and the answer to your question is we don't actually know in neuroscience. We don't. We don't think so. I would say most neuroscientists, the huge majority, think we probably don't. And the reason is because this is a vastly complicated system. But in the end, it's just a system. It's a machine. It's every neuron is responding to other neurons and so on. It's not clear where you get this deific puff of breath coming in that would be something other than a machine that's running. So that's why most neuroscientists land on the side that we probably don't have free will. But it certainly feels like we have free will. And one possibility is that you know, our science is still quite young. And in 500 years, we might, our neuroscience textbooks are going to look very different than they look right now. And maybe we'll understand something that, that we didn't uh, quite get. And, but, you know, just as a quick side note about Westworld is, so, you know, we debated this, I presented all sides of the argument and they've done a terrific job of keeping it right down that middle of not quite knowing. For those of you who've seen the show, you know, the hosts, the robots, Every time they feel like they have free will, it's, you know, one of the robots gives this speech on, you know, how he's now free. And as he's giving the speech, the speech writer echoes him at the same time and says the words with him, indicating that it's actually not a free speech that he's giving. Yeah. Right. Here's a, here's a very nice question for a speculative mind. What sense that doesn't exist yet would David and Brian most like to bring into existence? Can can I answer that one to start? Please. I I would love to have a very refined social sense which told me what a lot of other people were thinking, what they were really thinking. I would like to have not been so shocked at the Brexit vote or at the Trump vote. I I would like to well in fact I predicted both of those but I had no idea that my prediction was going to come true. It was shocking to me that so many people made a decision that was utterly incomprehensible to me. So I wish I could comprehend what other people's minds were seeing. That's perhaps the sense I would like. Theory of mind, but a kind of amplified version of it, you know. So, so let me let me mention for my answer three different ways that we're working on that. So one of them is you may remember from this TED talk I gave. One of the things we've done is where we can scrape Twitter for any particular hashtag, and you can pass that through an automated sentiment analysis. So we know you know generally what people are saying about it, and so you can feel thousands of tweets a second. You can feel a summary of what's going on in real time. Um, so that's one way to get some data from lots of people at once. But then there's something else we've done, which is we've built. So take a smart. There are lots of smart watches that will measure things like your heart rate and your heart rate variability and your galvanic skin response and so on. And 
so we've made it so that you can feel that on, on the wristband. So these states of the body that are normally invisible to you, you can feel that. Mm-hmm. But the cool part is you can feel someone else's physiology. So you put this wristband on someone else and you feel when they are getting stressed or when things are happening. And we've just now made it where one person can wear the watch and multiple people can feel what's going on with their physiology. Now I have no idea if this will be useful for marriages or, you know, anti-useful, but, but, <laughs> but it's just a cool thing to try uh, that we're testing out. And I'll just mention that there's a, some, some young college students just came up with a, a version of input for the buzz that they've spun off as their own startup company now, which is for children with autism who have a difficult time registering the emotions of the person they're talking to. They don't know if the person's happy or sad or angry. So, the the buzz the neocentric buzz does machine learning figures out from tone of voice about the emotion going on and then tells the user you know oh this person is angry this person is happy and so on mm-hmm. so that the child with autism can just get what's going on just be told what's going on that way and have you have you actually done these experiments those are those are ongoing right now those are underway right now oh really that'll be very interesting okay we've got a couple more questions i guess how long would someone who wasn't born blind but lost sight in childhood and has a memory of the world be likely to hold the sight memory in their brain? Yeah, it's a great question. What we know generally is that if you're born blind, your visual system gets taken over entirely. So you, of course, never even have a notion of sight. The older you are when you go blind, the less and less takeover there is. Because for example, if you've been using your eyes till you're 25 years old and then you go blind because of something wrong with your eyes, your visual system is pretty well cemented in place. And so even though there's some, some little bit of takeover, it's not, it's not a lot. And in fact, sorry, let me just jump back to one thing. This thing about dreaming, infants spend half their sleep time in REM sleep. But as you get older and older, you have less and less dream sleep because it's just less and less important because your visual system is, is cemented itself into place. So, so the answer is there's a very smooth continuum about depending on what age you go blind. But yes, you're right. People who go blind later have a sense a memory of what it was like to see. And therefore when they, you know, when they touch things in the world, they're still mapping it onto what it must look like. Yes. Yes. Ali Bohani asks, will you agree that one act that robots can never do is meditation (laughs) for that matter? Should not humanity at this crossroads of all things, AI go deeper in and build the spiritual circuit. I don't know quite which which circuit that is, but you might know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love questions that that begin. Will you agree? Because you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, not necessarily. Just imagine where our science will be one thousand seven hundred twenty years from now. I mean, the idea that we couldn't have a robot that meditates. I, sure, we could. Sure, we could have a robot that meditates because we are built of physical pieces and parts. And all Mother Nature had to work with was, you know, cells and putting them together in these very sophisticated ways. But when we understand this in a great time from now, there's no reason we can't build robots that have exactly the same kind of concerns and uh, foibles and aspirations that we have, including wanting to go off to a retreat at Esalen and meditate for a week. Yes. I mean, is is the um, acceleration of or the, the birth of intelligence just to do with complexity you know if we if if machines keep getting more and more and more complex or is there actually a state change where suddenly something new appears 
You know, I don't think uh, and that's an interesting question about the state change. I think it's just a matter of getting the principles right. So having more and more complex computers isn't going to do it. I mean, already the computational capacity we have on the planet it well outstrips anything a human brain can do. But it's not intelligent in the way that a human brain is because we don't have the principles right. We've got this, the, the main textbook that we use in the field is called Principles of Neural Science. It's the, the main neuroscience textbook is about 800 something pages. And it's totally misnamed because if it were really principles, it would be the size of a pamphlet. <laughs> and we'll get there someday. But, yeah. but we don't have, right now, it's just a core dump of everything we know. There's a very interesting one here. How does the brain generate something as breathtakingly strong as intense romantic love? And how can we train the brain to get over heartbreak? So, okay, great. So let me answer those in backwards order. I have a section in the book about heartbreak and how heartbreak, I suggest, is just like drug withdrawal in the following sense. When you're taking a drug, your brain gets used to it. It expects the presence of that drug. It actually changes in this plastic way around the expectation that the drug will be there. Suddenly you stop taking it and your brain has to struggle with the fact that it thought it should be there. I suggest this is exactly the same with heartbreak. You love somebody, a parent, a lover, whatever it is, that person disappears and your brain expects the presence of that person and struggles with the absence of that. Because even though we don't normally think about this, your brain, so much of your brain circuitry is about other people. It's simulating, it's running other people, what they'll say, how they'll react, how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that person is gone and you're not getting the, the key in the lock anymore there. And so they're, I think is no way to train the brain to get over heartbreak. It's the same as withdrawing from a drug. You just have to wait for that to happen. And then as far as how the brain generates romantic love, I mean, the weird part, and it's so hard because we've all been there. So it's so hard for us to recognize that we are just evolutionarily programmed to be there. It's very useful to have this. It's what causes not just mating, but bonding, uh, which is really useful for child rearing. And um, to my, so I'm writing this in my next book, actually, which is about reality, about the reality we perceive. And I think one way to see this, I, I, excuse me for saying something that sounds gross. Uh, I apologize, but it's an important biological point, which is that, you know, when you think about the, let's say, sexuality and this person that you love, you have all kinds of great things swirling around your head. But if you think about the genitalia of another species, it's disgusting. It's repulsive, Right. But it's only because you're programmed. I, I only mentioned this gross point to illustrate that you are programmed to find that person's genitalia, the most amazing thing in the world and not so much for a, for a different species. Anyway, everything about romantic love is this way where you, you know, your, your internal model of the person, you think they're really wonderful. And um, yeah, but we are, we are programmed for this. So you've never had a relationship with a squid then? <laughs> exactly. Sorry to end on such a weird note, but I just think it's an important biological point. Okay. Well, thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you. You as well, Brian. See you soon. Great. Thanks, Amelia. Uh, I really appreciate it.